This morning we're going to be continuing our studies in, uh, in 2 Timothy in, in a series entitled Be Strong in Grace and this is actually part 63. Can you believe it? We're nearly done with 2 Timothy. This is part 63 and the title is Scratching Itchy Ears and we'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 to 5. Last week Brian walked us through verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 where he gave us insight into the the true beauty, the true power, the true usefulness of the, of the book that has been breathed out by God himself. I love that idea, thought. The book that perfectly expresses God's opinion by explaining God's worldview, the way God looks at the world. If you want to know what God thinks, your most secure resource is always God's word. But you'll never discover what God's word teaches about what God thinks if you don't take the time to study God's word. As Brian pointed out last week, and as we've been saying now for months, when it comes to studying God's Word, that's not something that's going to happen casually. Uh, that you, you need to make a plan if you want to study God's Word. And I don't mean to overburden you. We don't mean to overburden you. But now we're saying that a personal plan to study God's Word is really important, but a plan for your family to study God's Word together and worship together is absolutely vital. I know you're busy, I, I'm busy too, but among the things that you spend your time on, there's nothing more important than your relationship with God and your family's relationship with God. And dad, the kids, mom and the kids are going to build their relationship with God on your relationship with God. They'll follow your lead, so make sure it's, it's, it's in place. There's no more direct line to a vital relationship with God than God's Word. And if we're waiting until we find time to study God's Word then all, we all need to understand that time is not something that we find. Time is something that we make. It, time doesn't lie around in big piles that we can discover someday. That has never happened to me. I've never gotten to 3 o'clock in the afternoon and discovered that I actually had 20 more hours in the day. Oh, well, had I known that, I would, have, I would have planned differently. That's never happened to me. Time doesn't lie around in big piles. Time is a, is a limited resource, just like money is. Our finances are limited. And, and what do we do with our finances, or what should we do with our finances? We should make a budget. Because if you don't make a budget, you're going to run out of money. If you don't budget your time, then you're going to run out of time before the day is over. And when it comes to things that are absolutely vital to life, there is nothing that eclipses God's opinion expressed in God's word. There is nothing more important than that. I, I don't mean to be beating you up or bullying you, but oh my goodness. There, no amount of money will ever get you through the dark nights of the soul. Never. The only thing that will get you through those dark nights is the time that you spend in God's word, learning God's opinion, learning to look at the world the way God looks at the world. Remember, as Brian taught us all last week, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Isn't that something that you want for yourself today? Isn't that something that you want for your kids and for the members of the, your family, the people that you love? If it is, then you need to make time to study God's Word on your own and with your family. And if you need more encouragement than that, go back and listen to what Brian had to say last week. It's, it's an absolutely vital message about and from God's Word. And with that review in place, it's time to start unpacking the passage for this morning. And as always, we begin to do that 
by standing together and reading aloud together if you're able. So if you will, stand with me as we read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5 together. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Thank you. As you take your seats, whisper a prayer again from the depths of your own heart that God's Spirit would use God's Word to speak to you this morning. The story from God's Word this morning is one with which many of you are probably not familiar or may not be familiar, but it's a story that's entirely apropos to the passage that we're looking at this morning. The story comes from 2 Kings chapter 15. But there's deep background in chapters 13, 14. The story is at the beginning of 15. So 13, 14 and the end of 15 will really fill this story out for you in terms of understanding. And, and you, could, you could serve yourself by pondering those chapters later today or later this week. But if you give me a minute, I can sketch out the background of the story. Because without that background, the import of the story is, is going to be lost. David is the king of Israel as the story opens, and he has several sons, a whole bunch, and one of his sons is named Absalom, an incredibly handsome man who had lots of couths and swaves and more charms than a Pandora bracelet, but Absalom was a, had a half-brother named Amnon, and, and they were both sons of David, but through different mothers, a brother from a different mother. We really shouldn't speak lightly of this, though, because Absalom, the charming one, hated Amnon, the reckless and foolish one. And while there was some justification for that anger and hatred, Absalom allowed his anger and hatred for Amnon to consume him. And so Absalom put together a plan to have Amnon murdered to revenge the pain that Amnon had caused him. And by the time the plan had run its course, Amnon was dead. King David, of course, was extremely angry when he heard about the plan that Absalom had made and, and carried out. And Absalom was forced into hiding in the country of Gesher, where he remained for three years. Gesher was where his wife had come from. The end of the three years, David's general, Joab, hatched a plan to make it possible for Absalom to return to Jerusalem because David had banished him. Provided he didn't enter the throne room or make any effort to see King David. That was the rule. And that's when Absalom initiated another plan, a plan to steal the hearts of the people of Israel and ultimately to steal the throne from King David. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from 2 Samuel chapter 15. David remained in the palace of Absalom, and, and, uh, and Absalom stayed, David remained in his palace, and Absalom stayed in his own house, but over the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Absalom would get up early in the morning and ride in his chariot with his 50-man escort to the gate and set himself up beside the gate, beside the road that led through the gate into the city. And whenever anybody came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, Hey, hey, sir, sir, just a, just a minute. Can I ask you what town are you from? The man would answer, your servant is from one of the cities of the tribes of Israel. And, 
And then Absalom would say, hey, hey, listen, listen, I, I'm sure that the claims that you have right now that you're making are valid and proper, but, but there's no representative of the king who will take the time to listen to you. I, I'm just sorry to have to tell you that. And, and then Absalom would add, oh, if only I would be appointed judge in this land, then everyone who has a, compl a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that they would receive justice. And also, whenever anyone approached Absalom to bow down to him or get on their knees before him, Absalom would reach out and lift that man up, just indicating that, that he wouldn't accept or, or he wasn't expecting to be honored in any way at all. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. He preempted them from getting to the king. And his whole goal in doing that was to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years of this ruse, Absalom sent word to the king and said, Please, may I be allowed to go to the city of Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord? And then Absalom, through his messenger, explained. I, I, while, while I was living in, in hiding during those three years, I, I made this vow. If the Lord makes it possible for me to go back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. That's what I told the Lord. and That's what I'm asking to do. And since David knew that this, this trip was for the purpose of fulfilling a vow and for an opportunity to worship, King David said to him, go in peace. And so Absalom made plans to go to Hebron. But before Absalom left for Hebron, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to say, I'm going to Hebron. And as soon as you hear the trumpets sounded on that day, make a proclamation in all of your towns, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem also accompanied Absalom on this journey, most likely to just get them out of the city. They'd been invited by Absalom, and they were his guests, but they went quite innocently, not knowing what Absalom was planning for that trip. Then when Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for a man named Ahithophel and asked him to come from Jerusalem to Hebron. And because Ahithophel was David's personal counselor, when Ahithophel showed up in Hebron, that was a sign to all of Israel that Ahithophel was on Absalom's side. Absalom pushed ahead with the rest of the plan, and by the time Absalom himself had had himself proclaimed as king over all of Israel, David's power base was entirely gone, and his options were severely limited at that point. David looked into the matter, and, and one of his counselors, one of his uh, court reporters said to him that the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And that's when David just said to all of his officials, let's go, let's, let's get out of, we have to get out of the palace, we have to get out of Jerusalem, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must move immediately, or he will quickly overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. So David and most of his top advisors left the city with all possible haste as word reached them that Absalom was occupying the palace. It was a somber and sorrowful crowd that moved along and out of the city of Jerusalem and headed in the direction of the Mount of Olives. And once David and his small group of advisors and servants reached the base of the Mount of Olives, David continued to climb, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his, he was barefoot and all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they climbed. 
And that is the story from God's Word. So what's really going on here in this story? What, well, at heart, we can, say that <clears throat> we can say that Absalom had already figured out something that Paul is going to explain to us this morning. Absalom already understood this. You remember that Absalom set out to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. And he did that by positioning himself in a place where he could talk with people who had itchy ears. Their ears were itchy because they had come to the king looking for a word, a word from the king, a word that would set them free, a, a word that would bring them justice. And they had a right to believe that the king would dispense justice. David was known for that. But they also had the, had the suspicion or they also had to know that maybe, just maybe, the king would not rule in their favor. Justice doesn't always go in the favor of the one that's seeking it. And this is very like how things go when we come to God with our problems. I don't know if this happens to you. I have itchy ears sometimes, and I hope that he'll say something to solve my problem or, or heal my sickness or make me rich or, well, you know, scratch my itchy ears. That's what I'm looking for God to do. But when we bring those things to God, sometimes he doesn't magical, magical us. And instead of solving our problems, he teaches us the wisdom and gives us the grace to thrive despite the problems. That's what God does sometimes. Stay with me now. The, the people were coming to see the king and to hear from him, but Absalom intercepted them and scratched their ears, scratched their itchy ears. He did that by telling them what they wanted to hear instead of telling them what they needed to hear. Absalom offered solutions that were not in keeping with the truth, but were to their advantage. Do you hear that? Not in keeping with the truth, but they were to their advantage. And in the process, he pulled them away from the true king and into the kingdom that he was setting up for himself. And the people had to have picked up on what Absalom was doing. After all, they, they, he had said to them, if, if only I were appointed judge in the, in the land, then everyone who has a, plaint, a complaint or a case could come to me. And I would see that they receive justice. You can't count on the king for that. Come to me. And then the day came when Absalom had the trumpet sounded and he proclaimed himself as the king and, and the people followed him in a heartbeat. And that's another evidence that they knew all along what he was up to. They knew the truth, but their itchy ears preferred the imposter Absalom to the true king David. They heard the lie. They, they knew the truth and they had heard the lie and their itchy ears preferred the lie. And because of that, they no longer wanted the truth. And because they had decided that they no longer wanted it, they decided that they'd no longer put up with it. They're not going to put up with the truth. And they willingly fell for Absalom's deception. So Absalom is to blame for what happened to them, but he, he couldn't have done that to them if they had not allowed themselves to be deceived. And that brings us to the passage for this morning. And as we start unpacking the truth from this passage, I want to remind you of where we've just been. At the end of chapter 3, Paul told us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, God breathed His message into the hearts and minds of men who either wrote it down or dictated what God had said to them and what God had moved and motivated them to say. And in that same passage at the end of chapter 3, Paul says that because God's word is, God's, is God breathed, it's useful, it's profitable. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Still a review from last week. 
And since God's word is profitable and useful in all those ways and more, Paul tells Timothy, Paul orders, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. That's what he says to him. Considering the book we hold in our hands, Timothy, you take it and preach it. And I, I remember when the, the Bukalot New Testament was completed, Faith and I were already in there. We had learned the language, and, and we were ready to go and minister to the churches up there. A guy named Bob Gustafson came up to me with a copy of the translation after it was dedicated, and he said, here it is, Jay. It's been translated. Now take it and teach it. Take it and teach it. God transformed the Bukalot by means of his word. It was that powerful. Paul tells Timothy that, that when he's in a place where he's been welcomed and, and people want hear to hear what he has to say, then he's to use that opportunity to preach the word. And if he's in a place where he's not welcome and, and people really aren't, aren't interested at all in hearing what he has to say, then he's to use that opportunity to preach the word. And there'd be times when he would need to correct or rebuke or encourage the people that were listening to him. And at times like that, Timothy was to use great patience and careful instruction to preach the word. And just so we can be clear that Paul practiced what he preached, look at what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or with human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see that? Paul is talking about the, about the Spirit's power and God's power. He's talking about constructing the faith of the people who were listening to him. So you can imagine what Paul would have had to say if he were to be confronted by somebody who was deconstructing his own faith and, and deconstructing the faith of the people that were listening to him. And you would think that with all this power at our disposal, with all this power available for our use, the word of God with all its power and majesty would dominate the pulpits across America. You'd think that with all this power at, all, at our disposal, with all this, this the, the word of God with all its power and majesty available to us, you would think that that would dominate the airwaves across America. With all of this power available to us, you would think that, that the word of God would dominate the internet everywhere we click or surf. You'd think that. But sadly, that's not what's happening in the pulpits or the airwaves or the internet. Instead, you may remember that at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul warned us that terrible times would come in the last days. And here in this passage for this morning, Paul tells us how those terrible times would get here and why they've come. Look at the beginning of verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine... That's a fancy religious term, but sound doctrine is healthy, unblemished, comprehensive, and true teaching that implants the God-breathed Word of God into the hearts and minds of those who follow Jesus. You'd think that the healthy, unblemished, comprehensive, true teaching that implants the God-breathed Word of God into the hearts and minds of those who follow Jesus would be the deepest, 
longing of anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. But Paul is very clear right here in this verse when he says that the day will come when people not only don't want sound teaching, the day will come when they won't tolerate it. They won't sit still for it. And I wonder, does that remind us of the way people reacted to the false things that Absalom was saying? It's the same sort of thing. So they don't want sound teaching and they won't tolerate it when they hear it. They prefer instead to listen to and believe the deceptive things the false teachers are saying. And that means that a day will come and has come when churches will no longer tolerate sound teaching when they hear it. Because the people in the church prefer to hear lies instead. And that means that the failure, the departure from the truth among Christians will begin in the pulpits and the airwaves and the internet. But the failure will last. Listen to me. The failure will last because there are people who call themselves Christians who will no longer tolerate the simple but powerful truth of God's word. And we can blame the speakers, the preachers, and the teachers for our departure from the truth in this modern age. But I can tell you that over the years, I have known men and women who at one time were an irresistible force as they insisted on the truth of God's word coming out of their ministry. But those teachers crashed and burned when they met the immovable object of public opinion when their audience began to refuse to tolerate sound teaching. And in the end, it's impossible to know where to lay the blame for the mess that we're in in the 21st century. Is it the fault of the preachers and teachers who are twisting the truth? Or is it the fault of the audiences who insist that the truth be twisted? This question reminds me of our, our problem today with illegal drugs and the people who push drugs. But if you think about it, if there were no users, there would be no pushers. And the same thing is true of false teaching. The only reason that we have false teachers is because there are people who won't tolerate sound teaching. They won't sit still for it. And I expect by now you, you want to say, hey, Jay, come on, light, lighten up. I'm going to go so light that we're going to look at a cartoon. Are you ready for this? Oh, there it is right there. I hope you can see it. Um, you see one lady is, is, is holding up a rather fright, a frightened look on her face. She's holding up a sign that says, don't mention hell, it makes me feel uncomfortable. There's another guy there that says, please refer to sin as bad choices. Tell me again how much God wants to bless me, another guy says. And the guy on the left in the second row says, tell me how to get rich. And the guy on the right in the second row, what can Jesus do for me? But I got to say my favorite is the guy in the second row, in the middle, with the big ears, who's holding a sign that says, tickle my ears. He's asking that the teacher tickle his ears. Or as the title for this morning put it, scratch my itchy ears. But what does that mean? Well, in thinking this week about a possible answer to that question, my, my mind went back to the 1990s. I know some of you were... We weren't even born back in the 1990s, but uh, our family was living in Aritao, near Vizcaya, in, at, the, at the school and flight base there in, in the Philippines. And during that time, I was spending more than 40 hours a week studying God's Word and, and writing commentary, and that, that's a time that remains one of my favorites of all the years of ministry 
uh, all these years. I, I remember one particular time when I was making my way through Ephesians chapter 5, and I ran headlong into Ephesians 5, 25 to 28, which says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I can tell you that I love the sleuth of studying God's Word, but I don't always love what God's Word does to me when I study it. And that day in Arita, when I looked at the, in depth at that passage right there, that was one of the, the days when the Word of God did something to me. That day, the Spirit of God convinced me and convicted me that I wasn't loving my wife as well as I should have been. I wasn't loving my wife with the same intensity and passion that's described right there in that passage. I knew that I needed to talk to Faith about that, what I'd learned, but I wasn't done with my day's work and Faith was busy with other things, so I stayed at what I was studying until supper time. At the end of my day, I went out into the kitchen where Faith was cooking, and, and I told her that I wasn't loving her as well as she deserved or as well as God's Word describes. And then I told her that I was going to begin to trust the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to change my heart and teach me to love her better. And I can admit to you today, this morning, that I was secretly hoping that she would say, Oh, honey, you love me well enough already. Thankfully, she didn't let me off the hook. Thank you, sweetheart. Instead, she said, well, I'll look forward to that. <laughs> she has no sense of humor at all. I, I don't know why you find that funny. No, I, I'll look forward to that, she said. And, and I mentioned already that sometimes I don't like what God's Word does to me when I study it. But what was it that God's Word did to me that day? Sitting there at my desk, away from my, my wife and my family, just all commentaries scattered out. Well, for one thing, God's Word made my ears itchy. God's Spirit spoke to me through God's Word and made me want to love my wife as well as she deserved to be loved, to, to love her in the way that God's Word described to me. So what does it mean to have itchy ears? Well, when something's itchy, you just got to scratch it because itchy things need to be scratched, right? I mean, scratching is implied in itchiness. In my case, my ears were itching back then because I was being prompted by God's Word to love my wife better. And quite frankly, I needed to hear something that would scratch that itch. Now, if I wanted to learn what I could do to love my wife better, this is not a trick question. If I, could learn, if I, if I wanted to learn what I could do to love my wife better... Where would you suggest that I go to find that information and advice? Any ideas? Any ideas where I might be able to find something, that, that, uh, a book that describes love and, and tells us how it actually works? Well, I think you know where this is going, so I'll just go ahead and say it. If my ears are itching because I want to learn to love my wife better, I can find multiple passages in God's Word that will scratch my itchy ears. All I have to do is open God's Word and ask the question, how can I love my wife better? But at the risk of beating a horse that should already be dead, if I tune into social media and ask the question, how can I love my wife better? You know as well as I do that social media is not going to have a lot to offer me. And again, I'm not saying that there are no podcasts or internet Bible studies that can help me with my marriage, but finding something that's going to be truly helpful for my marriage on the internet 
in social media is a crapshoot. It's a, it's a gamble. It's not a sure bet when I begin clicking through my search. So when my ears are itchy because I want to love my wife better, the best resource that I have is God's Word because God wants me to love my wife better. That's why he said what he did in that passage. He wants me to love my wife even better than I want to love my wife. But social media is going to fall short when it comes to scratching my ears about how to, love, how to better love my wife. And there's a flip side to that coin. It's equally true. If my ears are itchy because I want to find a way to leave my wife, then God's word is not going to scratch my itchy ears. It's not going to help me with that pursuit. God's word is not going to help me to know how to best leave my wife. Several years ago, I was counseling a couple who were trying to revive their, their dying marriage to avoid divorce, but uh, in the end, they decided that their marriage simply was not worth the work that it would take for them to stay married, and so they decided to get a divorce. And like always, that decision divided two camps, two camps. They, the, the kids were on one side of the, either side of the issue. They, everybody had to decide whether they were going to be on his side or her side, and And that meant that they were no longer able to trust the people that they usually trusted. So they hired attorneys, of course, and and began the caustic and and painful process of permanently destroying their relationship. So now the couple were fighting with each other. And their attorneys were fighting with each other. So there was no one to serve as a go-between in the decisions that needed to be made about the kids and about their possessions. So they started to call me and say, please tell her that I will be willing for her to have the house if I can have the, the boat and the cars. And, I, and then please tell me, she would say, please tell him that he can have the boat, but I can't live without a car, so that's not going to work. We were dividing up the kids and the kids' time. And I can tell you, quite frankly, that I came home at the end of every day with my spirit completely deflated. I would walk in the house and acting as this go-between in this mess that they had created for themselves until one day Faith, who loves me very well, said, you know, I, I hate what this is doing to you. Why don't you get in touch with both of them and say, I would love to help you with your marriage if you want to put it back together, but I'm not going to help you with your divorce. Oh, the relief that came at that moment. I called them and I said, this is... The way it's going to go, and you're just going to have to rely on your attorneys to, to fight it out. What I'm trying to say here is that if, uh, if I want to love my wife, social media is not going to help. If my ears are itching because I want to love my wife, if my ears are itching because I want to leave my wife, social media is going to help me. But the Word of God isn't going to have a lot to offer. That's why my counsel was falling short. I didn't know how to help them break up. That's because God's Word wants me to love my wife, and social media wants me to leave my wife, so I have to decide which kind of help I'm going to need. And that's what verse 3 is talking about when we put the two pieces of the verse together. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We've been talking specifically about marriage and how marriages and families are falling apart at an increasingly alarming rate, but I, I don't want you to think that this is a new phenomenon in the, in the 21st century because the truth is this kind of advice coming out of the world is not new. 
This is the kind of advice that the world always gives. I remember 1975. How many here remember 1975? Oh, wow, a lot more than three. I, I'm surprised that you would admit that when you won't admit other things, but... I remember I was still in my teens in 1975, and Paul Simon came out with a hit song. And since I love poetry set to music, I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm just going to, I want to share the words so that you can, you, well, anyway, here's the words. The problem is all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free. There must be 50 ways to leave your lover. She said, it's really not my habit to intrude. Furthermore, I hope my meaning won't be lost or misconstrued, but I'll repeat myself at the risk of being crude. There must be 50 ways to leave your lover. You just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and get yourself free. I can assure you that that was not one of my favorite songs in the 1970s. And as you can see, there's absolutely no romance there. But the world has always had the opinion that staying with your spouse is neither romantic nor exciting. And I think you'd have to agree with me that today there's no greater spokesperson for the world than social media. And that's why we've been saying that if you want to love and respect your spouse... God's Word will be tremendously helpful with that. But social media will not. If, on the other hand, you want to leave your spouse, God's Word won't be much help when it comes to advice about how to leave. But social media will tell you that there must be at least 50 ways to get that done. So that advice isn't new. It's as old as the hills. But today, that kind of advice is more readily available than it has ever been. You can see and read and hear more lies in 10 clicks on social media today than you could see, hear, and read in 10 days' worth of conversation before social media existed. And again, I'm not saying that the truth is not on social media. I'm just saying you can't find it. You can't sort it out from the other things that are there, especially without the aid of God's Word. But as we continue to be honest... Let's admit that the problem is not that people like us don't know the truth. The problem is that people like us don't love the truth as well as we should. In fact, in John 3.19, Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And that's the very thing that Paul is talking about when we add verse 4 to the mix. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And that's the very thing I mean when I say that I don't always like what God's Word does to me. It tells me things I don't I really don't want to hear things that rock me to my very core. In fact, I can tell you this morning with all honesty that every time I study God's Word, I come away from that study deeply convinced, deeply convicted that this particular thing has to change in my life. God's Word confronts me continually. And when that happens, God's Word tells me things that I don't want to hear. When God's Word tells me things that I... I, that are going to rock me to the, my very core, I have a choice to make. Am I going to love the lie? Or am I going to love the truth? 
Am I going to love the darkness? Or am I going to love the light? And there are plenty of places we could go in God's Word to answer that question, but perhaps we can rely on an old Cherokee heritage story. I love tribal heritage stories that I'm sure you've heard before. You're going to know the end, but I'm hoping that it'll have fresh meaning this morning. It seems that one evening an old Cherokee elder was teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside of me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. And this battle that goes on between the two wolves is inside us all. The older man continued, one wolf is evil. He is anger, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good. He's joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a minute, and then he asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? Wisely, the grandfather smiled and replied quite simply, the one you feed. The one you feed. Paul's just told Timothy that the time would come when people would not put up with sound teaching. When that time comes, they will then gather a great number of teachers around them, teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. I, I, I remember back in the, in, the, in the old days, before the Internet, I, I wondered how on earth this could possibly be true. How can you get that many false teachers all in one church? Ah! Turns out it's easy now. I mean, it's just right there for all of us. We could have, you could be, you could be clicking through uh, the, the internet right now, trying to figure out if what I'm telling you is true. I'd prefer that you go back to God's Word to search the Scriptures daily to see if what I'm saying is true. You may be watching Charles Stanley. I mean, he's, he's dead, but a recording. You could be watching Charles Stanley right now as I'm sitting here trying to talk to you. I, I, don't, I don't know. But it is so easy to fill our world with false teachers once we start down that path. Once they've gathered those... Those, those false teachers around them, they'll turn their ears away from the truth. This is what Paul has said. And they'll turn aside to myths and lies. They will prefer lies to the truth. But how was Timothy supposed to react to all this? What was Timothy supposed to do? What choice should he make? Paul is, has already huddled up with Timothy. And now, you know, they, what's running the play going to look like? Well, look at verse 5. But you... No, you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, we could take a detour here and, and, and talk about apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, and I thought about that for a little while. We could say that an evangelist in this context is not the Billy Graham kind of an evangelist. An evangelist in this context is, is one who disciples, teaches, and trains leaders in the church but let's not get bogged down with that right now. Instead, I vexed you earlier with a poem by Paul Simon. Let me regale you with a poem that Rudyard Kipling wrote to his son about the choices he had to make between lies and truth, between darkness and light. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. 
If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they're gone and so hold on when nothing is in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all people count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it. And what's more, you'll be a man, my son. I know that I've been beating you up for relying too heavily on social media. But can I suggest an alternative to the remoteness of reaching out to someone who's not right there in the room with you? I want to show you a, another bit of tribal wisdom. Uh, it's in this. This is uh, something that was made by the Newcock, but this isn't what I brought to show you. I actually brought this. I uh, want you to see these pictures here because those are the Newcock. It's there in New... newly reached tribe in, in Brazil. And they're making what they call friendship bracelets. And I, I know it's not easy to see, but I'm holding one here in my hand, uh, one that they made. And I, I love watching people try to put this on. I've seen a couple of, a few people do that. This is a great friendship bracelet, so, you know, that they'll wrap it around their friends. So they, they've got it on the right, and then they, they've got all these strings here, but that's not how the Nukak do it. That's not what this is designed for. This is designed with several strings because it's intended that it will take a long time for you to put this on your friend. You grab this string that's here at the end and this string that's here at the end and your friend puts out their wrist and, and you wrap it around and then you tie this individually. And then you go to the next and the next and the next and you tie each of those individually until it's all, until you've tied one on. I guess I shouldn't say it that way, but... That's what you do. And then when I'm all done putting that on my, my friend's wrist, then he takes the time, she my wife might take the time to put it on my wrist, and, and she ties them one by one. And all during that time, we're face to face, heart to heart, talking to one another and leaving behind a memento, a reminder of the conversation that we had at depth as we sat in the same room and loved each other. I think it's a wonderful reminder. I'm, uh, they've got a cottage industry going there, as you can see, and I've already been in touch with, with Joshua to see if maybe, uh, with Joshua Chang to see if maybe we can't get some of them uh, sent to us, uh, I don't know, around Christmas time, and maybe we can give them out, and I don't expect all you men to go, oh, by the way, 
the, the nukak also make these. <laughs> Those are jaguar teeth, and it's a whole different meaning, whole different intention. <laughs> I, I'll just, you know, I'll just say that. You don't want to put this on backwards, and I'll, I'll also say that, but I, I, I think that this is such a, a sweet bit of tribal wisdom. I'd love it if we could have some for our own. The idea is once you put it on, you can't take it off. But I think we'd, we'd give some of you permission to just tie them together while you're, you know, you're talking to each other, and maybe you can take it home and, and sit it on a shelf. We'll work on that for Christmas time. I've already been in touch with Joshua. In our world today, we're more connected than we've ever been. But we're at the same time lonelier than we've ever been. And that's because remoteness brings loneliness. It always has, and it always will. So, let's get off the screens and get into the same room with one another. Let's stop looking at each other and start seeing each other. Let's stop making schedules for one another and start making time for one another. Let's stop being remote and start being real. And while you're busy with that, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of the ministry that's been given to you to do. Choose light instead of darkness. Choose truth instead of lies. And always, always scratch your itchy ears with a certainty, reality, accuracy, precision, soundness, beauty, and truth that comes from God's Word. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father and our God, we bless your name once again today for your kindness, for your goodness, for your mercy. Thank you for making time for us, God. We know that you're not bound by time. But thank you that as our hearts are turned to you at this moment right now, you are hearing everything that we say. You are bending down from your great throne to listen to us because we pray in Jesus' name. God, we want to be done with the remoteness in our lives. We want to be done with the notion that social media has a way of nourishing me. God, we want to do away with, we want to do away with everything but your word and the things that your word recommends. So teach us to be people who prefer light to darkness. Teach us to be people who prefer truth to lies. Teach us not to give in to the convenience of letting someone scratch my itchy ears by telling me something that I want to hear instead of telling me something that I need to hear. God, speak to us, we pray. By your word, draw us together. Strengthen us as we strengthen one another. By your grace, for your glory. And thank you especially for the privilege that we have of mentioning the name of Jesus to you every time we pray. Amen and amen. 
We're headed out there on a pursuit of truth, truth that we can share with other people. We're not going to tolerate lies. We're just going to chase the truth and share it. And in that, in that pursuit, we've huddled up, and it's time for me to say, ready? ready. Go get him, Potter's house.